Well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Psalm chapter 9. We're going to look at several psalms this morning, and these are psalms that really ministered to my own heart actually a number of years ago when we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And I, I've shared some of these things actually with Cornerstone during that time. But as I was reflecting on things that are happening even in the news over the last eight days, I was drawn back to the truth of these psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 9, 10, 11, and 12 this morning. So four psalms all right in a row. And when we think about the Psalms, the Psalms, of course, were organized as Israel's hymn book into five different books. Roughly 75 of the Psalms were written by David, and most of those occur in the first half of the book of Psalms. But the organization of the Psalms is not random. It is intentional, and I believe that these four psalms are intentionally put together back to back to back to back in an effort to teach us some important truth about who God is and why we can trust Him at times when the world around us seems as if it is falling apart. And I'm sure like you, Last Saturday, when news broke of the terror attacks in Israel, you were horrified to learn about those atrocities that were being committed. And even as more and more news has come out about those things, it's become increasingly evident that it was a horrific terrorist attack performed by Hamas, on Israeli citizens, and I know you've been watching the news. Now, the good news this morning is that Pastor John is going to address that situation as well. My goal this morning is simply to talk through how we as believers can think about these things in terms of our own temptation to be anxious our own concerns, the fear, and perhaps the concern that wells up in our own heart when we encounter or learn about these kinds of things. And then Pastor John in the main service will help us think about these things from a broader theological perspective. But certainly if you've been following the news you know that it's been a troubled time for the people of Israel over the last eight days. And for us, not only do we sympathize with people who are the victims of that kind of violence, but for us here at Grace Community Church, we have a number of specific connections to the land of Israel. Obviously, the land of Israel is the land of the Bible, the Jewish people, are God's chosen nation, and we recognize that He has a future in store for them, so we understand all of that. But at a more personal level, we have graduates of the Master's Seminary who are pastoring churches in Israel, one near Tel Aviv, one near Jerusalem. We have missionaries here 
who are part of our GMI family who minister in Israel. And of course, we have a campus connected to the Master's University that is in Israel, the Israel Bible Extension Campus. Now, those of you who know about IBEX, you know that uh, the students who were there were able to evacuate and they came home safely this past week. But we even have parents of some of those students in our Cornerstone Fellowship group. So for us, seeing what's happening in Israel, we recognize that this is something that is more than just thinking about the eschatological or potential eschatological implications of what God is doing in geopolitical events that take place around the world. For us, we have friends and ministry partners who are directly affected by these things. In fact, one of our Doctor of Ministry graduates who pastors a church over there has two grown children who are both on the front lines of what the IDF is doing right now. So as you think about these things, you can be praying for our ministry partners who we have in Israel. But in Psalm 9, 10, 11, and 12, we encounter the psalmist who for at least three of these psalms was David. I actually think it probably was also David in uh, Psalm uh, chapter 9. Um, but uh, for, did I say Psalm 9? That means Psalm 10. I'm off by one. The, David is definitely the author of Psalm 9. You're looking there at the superscript and you're like, it says a Psalm of David, so why would you even question that? As I'm talking, I'm going, I don't think what I'm saying is quite right. So, we're going we're gonna to just pretend like that didn't happen, and we're going to say Psalm 10, 11, 12, and 13. Those are the four psalms that we're looking at. Psalm 9 is a great psalm, too, but uh, Psalm 10 is where we're going to be starting. You'll notice in Psalm 10, it doesn't have a superscript. It do, in other words, it doesn't attribute Psalm 10 to David. It does attribute Psalm 11, Psalm 12, and Psalm 13 to David. I actually think that Psalm 10 probably was a Psalm of David and probably is kind of a continuation almost of Psalm 9. So for our purposes this morning, we are going to assume that all four of these Psalms were written by David. And David, of course, was no stranger to conflict, to hardship, to adversity, and to experiencing and seeing the effects of evil around him as the wicked seemed to be victorious and as the righteous in experienced suffering. We'll talk a little bit more about David's life at various points throughout these psalms. What I want to do as we work our way through these psalms is I, I want to highlight the first half of each of these four psalms, and then we're going to come back through and we're going to highlight the second half on sort of a second pass through these four psalms. But these four psalms have in common David's concern 
over the fact that it seems as if the wicked are getting away with horrific acts of violence and wickedness, atrocities, especially atrocities committed against the righteous or against the innocent. And so if you look there at Psalm 10, verse 1, you'll notice that David begins, again, I'm assuming David is the author here, but you'll notice that David begins with a question. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then go over to Psalm 11 and look at Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then look at Psalm 12, verse 1. Psalm of David, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And then finally, look at Psalm 13, verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face for me, or from me. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? What we see in these four psalms is really four questions. Four questions that David asks in light of the fact that he is seeing wickedness prevail in the world around him. And in fact, we'll come back through these Psalms and we'll see the catalyst for the concern. But as we kind of outline these four Psalms this morning, we begin with that word concern, David's concern. And that concern is expressed in the form of four questions, right? In Psalm chapter 10, the question is, why? Why do you stand afar off, Lord? Why are you letting this happen? Why is it that these circumstances are being allowed to take place in the first place? So the question of Psalm 10 is why? And then the question of Psalm 11 is, if the foundations are destroyed, what? What shall the righteous do? Uh, What are we supposed to do if the world around us implodes. If a conflict between a terrorist organization and the state of Israel becomes a regional conflict, and that regional conflict becomes an all-out war, and everything as we know it implodes, what are the righteous supposed to do? And then in Psalm 12, there's no specific question asked, but the question is implied in verse 1, Where have the righteous gone? Where are all of the righteous influences? 
I think even as we look at our society here in the United States and we see what's happening in public schools and in the public square, we find ourselves asking the question, well, where are all the righteous? And then Psalm 13, how long is this going to continue? So you have David's concern expressed in a series of questions, one in each of these four psalms, and those questions are why, what, where, and how long. And I think that's helpful and insightful because those are the very questions that people ask when things around them start to fall apart. Why is this happening? Psalm 11. What are the righteous supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Psalm, or excuse me, why is this happening? Psalm 10. What are we supposed to do? Psalm 11. Where have all the righteous gone? Psalm 12. And how long are we going to suffer? How long is this hardship going to last? Psalm 13. So the psalmist, David, is identifying the very questions that we find our own hearts asking when we see or experience hardship, especially when that hardship comes through other people who are doing unrighteous things, and it seems as if the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And I know for my own heart, as news reports came in of the terrorist attacks and the brutality and the savagery, those were the questions that my heart immediately asked. Why is this happening? What are the righteous supposed to do? Where have all the righteous gone? And how long is this going to be allowed to continue? So David's concern is expressed in those four questions. And if we go back to Psalm 10, we can begin to assess the cause behind the concern. So we have David's concern, and now we have the cause behind the concern. And specifically, the cause behind the concern is People who are acting wickedly, unrighteous people, are doing things that are causing the righteous to suffer. So look at Psalm 10, verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue me, hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are high, out of his sights. In other words, the wicked doesn't even take thought of the fact that God is sitting in judgment. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. 
Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and depression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches. He bows down. And the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. Verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Verse 13, why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, the Lord will not require it. So here we have in Psalm 10, the reason for the psalmist's concern. Why is the psalmist concerned? He's concerned because wicked people are doing wicked stuff. They're harming and hurting and oppressing and violently attacking the righteous. And you'll notice the pride of the wicked man. He says in his heart, there is no God. Or if there is a God, he doesn't care about what I'm doing. I'm never going to be held accountable for my wickedness. Or in the cases of those motivated by false religion, perhaps they even think that what they're doing is somehow pleasing a God of their own imagination. It's interesting, some of those verses, you read those verses and you think, wow, sounds like and again, I'm assuming David as the author here. It sounds like David is describing some of the events of even the past week. All right, look at Psalm 11. We already read verse 3, but verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge, David says. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. In other words, David is on the run. He's fleeing from some enemy. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright of heart. And then his question in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Here you have David being pursued now personally by some sort of wicked force, an enemy. We don't know exactly which enemy, but we'll talk just a little bit about David's life here in a moment. It could have been one of a number of instances when he was being pursued by his enemies. And then look at Psalm 12. Here in verse 1, again, he asks essentially the implied question, where have the righteous gone? And then verse 2, he describes those who are attacking. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. 
May the Lord cut off the flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. And then Psalm 13, verse 2, again that question, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart all the day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversary will rejoice when I am shaken. So in each of these four psalms, the cause for the concern is the same. In Psalm 10, it's that the wicked are violently oppressing the righteous. In Psalm 11, it's that David is being pursued by wicked men. In Psalm 12, it's that the wicked speak with flattering lips and they exhibit hypocrisy and lying and treachery in order to entrap and ensnare the righteous. And then in Psalm 13, it is the fact that the wicked are seeking to triumph over the righteous, and David asks the question, how long? But again, I think these four psalms are put back to back to back to back in consecutive order in the book of Psalms, in this arrangement of Israel's hymns, because these four psalms go together. And if we think about the life of David just for a moment, we don't know from the superscripts when these psalms were specifically written, but David's life, these psalms could have fit a number of points at David's life. You'll remember 1 Samuel chapter 16, David and Goliath. David slays Goliath, and it is the high point of David's young life. He had already been anointed as the future king of Israel by Samuel, and now he has this great victory. And yet, in spite of the fact that he's been anointed by Samuel, the prophet of God, to be the next king of Israel, and in spite of the fact that he has, through the Lord's power, won a great victory over one of Israel's most notorious enemies, not just the Philistines in general, but over Goliath specifically, And in spite of the fact that David is praised by the people, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, David is about to enter a time in his life when he will be persecuted, hunted down, attacked, viciously maligned, and not by the Philistines, though certainly that's part of the problem, but by his own people, and to make it even more personal, by his best friend's dad, and his wife's dad, (laughs) right? David is best friends with Jonathan. He's married to Michael. Michael's the daughter of Saul. Jonathan's the son of Saul. And yet what we have is Saul trying to kill David. And you can read all about this in 1 Samuel 21, all the way till David is finally crowned king. But David finds himself hiding in caves, wandering in the wilderness. At a certain point, he actually has to find refuge with the Philistines. 
Some of you remember a number of weeks ago when Hal Hayes preached on one of the Psalms that David wrote when he was trying to find refuge in Gath, the very city that Goliath was from. So that's how bad things have gotten for David. He's like trying to find asylum in Goliath's hometown because Saul is trying to kill him. You know, and you've heard about people who have issues with their in-laws, but this is like extreme. (laughs) So Saul is on the hunt for David. And yet David has not done anything to undermine Saul. And even after Saul is killed and David is crowned king, he still has a struggle for the throne with one of Saul's other sons, a son named Ishbosheth, who actually tries to reign in his father's place until he's killed about two years after Saul's death. But even after David becomes king, that's not the end of the drama for David, right? David is constantly warring with other nations. So you have the attack of not just the Philistines, but other groups, the Moabites, the Amorites, all of these other groups that attack Israel during this time period. And then, of course, because of David's own sin with Bathsheba, recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David will reap some of the consequences of that sin through turmoil in his own family. His son Ammon actually rapes his half-sister Tamar, creates a huge family scandal. Tamar's brother Absalom kills Ammon, which only makes the scandal worse. And then, after David forgives Absalom for killing Ammon... Absalom has the audacity to stage a coup. And as a result of that coup, David and his family is forced to flee from Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, has taken the throne. And then, of course, Absalom is killed in the battle, famously gets his hair caught in the tree. And... He's killed by Joab, and David is heartbroken over the death of Absalom. And then even when David is an old man and he wants Solomon to be his successor, one of David's other sons, a son named Adonijah, tries to take the throne one more time. So David's life is not an easy life. It's a hard life. And In spite of the fact that he is, as a young boy, anointed to be the future king of Israel, he's going to spend much of his life encountering those who are trying to kill him, whether it is Saul and Saul's armies, or the Philistines and Philistine armies, or any of the other neighboring nations that want to destroy Israel, or whether it's members of his own family. And one of the things that I think is kind of interesting when we think about these psalms is it's always good when we go through trials, it's always good to be reminded of the truth of Scripture that comforts our souls. But isn't it true that the hardest trials of all are the trials that are caused by other people? Right? To experience a, you know, 
a natural disaster or uh, an unexpected accident or a sickness of some kind, those are difficult trials. There's no question about that. But the hardest, the most difficult, the most painful trials of all are the trials that are caused when other people harm us or hurt us in some way, if they injure us in some way. I think you see that even in the life of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul goes through this long list of all the things that he endured. He talks about shipwrecks and being imprisoned and going without food and without sleep and wandering through roads in the desert and the wilderness and all of these hard things that he went through. And he's kind of like, I mean, that's, that's just what it means to suffer for Jesus. But the greatest concern of all that he had was for the churches because when it came to the things that mattered most, it was about the people and the people had the greatest ability to injure the apostle Paul. It's true in our lives as well. And I think it was true for David. And I think we see that in these Psalms because the catalyst for David's concern in these Psalms is that people are seeking to injure him. And whether it was his father-in-law trying to kill him or whether it was the Philistines trying to kill him or later in life, whether it was his son Absalom trying to kill him or his son Adonijah trying to usurp his throne. Any of those scenarios would have caused David to ask these kinds of questions. Why is this happening? What are the righteous supposed to do? Where have all the righteous gone? And how long is this going to last? Well, what I think is really interesting about these psalms is that you have those initial questions one in each of these psalms. And yet, when you get to the end of these four psalms, what you find out is that David never answers those questions. He never answers in Psalm 10 the question, why? He never answers in Psalm 11 the question, what are we supposed to do? He doesn't answer in Psalm 12 the question, where have the righteous people gone? And he doesn't answer in Psalm 13 the question, how long? Instead, he, he introduces in each of these four psalms and then answers a different question, but it's the question that is so important for us to understand and be able to answer rightly when we are in times when we find our own hearts asking those questions. And that question is the question, who? Right? So he starts with the question, why, or what, or where, or how long? But in each of these four Psalms, he ultimately answers the question, who? As in, who is in charge? To whom do we look? In whom do we trust? To whom do we run? And so if we start in each of these Psalms with David's concern... 
And then we see the cause for that concern. The concern is these questions that are being prompted because of the attacks of wicked people who are seeking to injure David in some way. We come thirdly to what I call the character, but it's not David's character, it's the Lord's character. And ultimately, David takes his eyes off of his circumstances and puts them up towards heaven. And when his perspective shifts from the people around him who are trying to harm him, and he looks up and fixes his eyes on the Lord, his perspective suddenly changes, and he goes from concern to confidence. So look at this. It's, it's in each one of these psalms. You can see the shift. Starting in Psalm 10, verse 14. So having asked the question, Lord, why, why are you letting this happen? Verse 14, you, Lord, have seen it. You have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been his helper and the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. And then verse 16, here it is. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble you will strengthen them, you will strengthen their heart, you will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. I love verse 16. I, I see verse 16 as the answer to that question of who. Right? David starts with the question, why? Verse 1. But by the time we get to verse 16, he's not asking the question, why anymore? He's asking the question, who? And in this case, it's who is in charge? And he's pointing to character, but not his own character and not the character of his circumstances or the people who are attacking him. He's pointing ultimately to the character of the Lord. And in this particular psalm, he is highlighting the sovereignty of God. And I think that's a particular divine characteristic, a divine perfection that we need to remind our own hearts of when we are tempted to ask the question, why? Lord, why is this happening? Whether it's events in Israel or whether it's events in our own life, we often find ourselves asking, Lord, why are you letting this happen and God's answer to that is not to tell us why, but rather to point to himself and say, you can trust in me because I'm sovereign. This isn't an accident that's happening. This isn't something outside of the realm of my sovereign control. Because verse 16, the Lord is on his throne. He is king forever and ever. Why is this happening? I don't know. But I know someone who does. And he happens to be in charge. And I can trust him. 
Well, look at how David answers the question of who in Psalm 11, right? Verse 13, if, or excuse me, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? And then notice verse 4, there's this shift from looking at the horizontal to considering the vertical. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The, Lord, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And then verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So in Psalm 10, to the question why, David points to the sovereignty of God. Now in Psalm 11, to the question, what will the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? And here I'm tempted to think more about our own nation than even geopolitical events. If our society here in the U.S. continues to go in the direction that it's going, which is the downward spiral of Romans chapter 1, if it continues to spiral down, what, what are Christians supposed to do? What are, what are the righteous supposed to do? Sometimes it feels helpless, overwhelming, very discouraging. And yet, where does David point us? He doesn't answer the question, what are the righteous supposed to do? He answers the question by showing us what the righteous are supposed to do, and that is to look to the one who is righteous. If Psalm 10 emphasized the Lord's sovereignty, Psalm 11 emphasizes his righteousness. It's right there in verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. And the ultimate hope that we have for our nation and for our world is not to try and legislate morality. It's not found through political action. It's ultimately found in the fact that our Lord is righteous and one day he will return and he will make all things right. And isn't that a great comfort? So to the question of what are we supposed to do... <clears throat> David again answers that by saying, no, the real question you need to ask is who? Who is righteous? And who is the one who promises that he will return and make all things right? Well, we see the same thing in Psalm 12, right? So where are all of the godly people? I mean, to be honest, even seeing what's happening in Israel right now, you kind of look at the larger world and you ask, well, where are all of Israel's allies? Like, even if it's, you know, not for biblical eschatological reasons to be Israel's ally, like, where are the de protectors and defenders of just democracy? It kind of seems like the nations of the world are a little slow to respond on some of these things. Where, where have all the righteous gone? Well, 
Look at what David says. In answer to the wicked who ask, who is Lord over us? Verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in safety, the safety for which he longs. And then verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. But I want you to notice verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to his word, verse 6. God will keep his word. What is this emphasizing about who God is? If, if Psalm 10 emphasized that the Lord is sovereign and Psalm 11 emphasized that the Lord is righteous, Psalm 12 emphasizes that the Lord is faithful. He has given his word and he will keep his word. And so in answer to the question, where have all the, where have all the faithful people gone? The answer to that question is, well, no, the Lord is faithful, and the Lord hasn't gone anywhere. The Lord is faithful to keep His promises, and He will keep His promises to His people, and therefore we can trust Him. And so to the question why, the answer is look to the Lord and rest in His sovereignty. And to the question what are we supposed to do, the answer is to look to the Lord and rest in His righteousness. And to the question where have all the faithful people gone, the answer is to look to the Lord and trust in His faithfulness. And then finally, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? Verse 4, my enemy will say I have overcome him. My adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But, verse 5, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And here we have in Psalm 13, again, the question, how long? David doesn't answer that question. What he answers instead is the question, who do we run to when we are experiencing this kind of concern? And the answer is to the Lord. And what does he emphasize about God's character in Psalm 13? That God is a God of grace and loving kindness. Why do these things happen? God is sovereign. What are the righteous supposed to do? God is righteous. Where have all the faithful people gone? God is faithful and he's still here and he will keep his promises. How long is this going to last? God is a God of grace and mercy. And no matter how long the earthly trial that you're enduring will last, it does not compare to the eternal comfort that he has promised to you if you are in Christ. And so how does David end this sequence of psalms? Right? It starts with why, and then it goes to what are we supposed to do, and then it goes to where has everybody gone, and it ends with how long is this going to last, but it doesn't actually end there, right? Those are just the questions that come out of a heart that's hurting and looking at its circumstances and wondering what to do. But when David reminds himself, God is king forever, 
Psalm 10. The Lord is righteous, Psalm 11. He will keep his word, Psalm 12. And he has extended to you infinite mercy and grace such that the loving kindness that you will experience from him is everlasting. And David goes from worry to worship. So that Psalm 13 ends with, I will sing. I'm going to sing because you know what? I don't know how all of this is going to work out in the moment. But what I do know is that God knows and he is sovereign over it and he is a righteous judge of all of it and he will keep his promises perfectly and those promises include the extension of his mercy and grace towards me. And because of that, I don't know the answer to all those other questions, but I know the answer to the question of who. Because of the answer to that question, my anxiety is eclipsed by a peace that surpasses all understanding. And the worry and the concern and the heartache, I give those all to Christ and I have the opportunity to sing and to rejoice and to meditate on the great God who is in control of all things and who cares for us. Now, one of the things, just as we draw these thoughts to a conclusion that I think is so compelling about these four psalms, not only is it incredibly practical for us to think about the application of this when we encounter difficult times in life, or when we find ourselves in a season when the entire globe is fixated on events that are taking place in the Middle East. The the questions of concern that well up in our hearts and tempt us and overwhelm us if we give in to that temptation, the antidote to that is not actually to have the answers to those questions, but rather to fix our eyes on the one who is sovereign and righteous and faithful and gracious. But what I love about these psalms is the fact that ultimately they point us to the cross because the reality is that we are all sinners and therefore as those who are wicked in the eyes of the Lord, we all deserve the punishment that these psalms lay out for God's righteous judgment on the wicked. And how is it that a sovereign God could orchestrate all of redemptive history so that his righteousness would be put on display, his promises would be perfectly and faithfully fulfilled so that in spite of the fact that all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, that he might extend the loving kindness and grace and mercy of Psalm 13? The answer to that question is the cross. And it's only because a descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on a cross to bear our sins that we might be in such a reconciled, saving relationship with this God that his sovereignty is a comfort and his righteousness is a consolation and his faithfulness to keep his word is faithfulness with regard to promises that relate to us and his grace is a gift that we enjoy. And so because the Lord Jesus Christ was afflicted by the wicked, 
we who were wicked are now clothed in his righteousness. And therefore, the questions of life that our hopeless world cannot answer, we have an answer to. But it's not to know why. It's not to know how long. It's not to know where or what. It is to know who is king forever and to trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of these four psalms, the truth that you are sovereign over all, you are the king, the truth that you are righteous and you will bring all things to righteous judgment, you will make all things right, the truth that you are faithful to keep your word, and the truth that you are gracious and merciful to your redeemed, so that we as those who have come to a saving knowledge of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and been reconciled to you through Him, that we might respond in singing and in joy, in a peace that surpasses all understanding, in a hope that is not attached to the things of this world. And so, Lord, my prayer for us is that as we encounter concern caused by the wickedness of this world, that we would answer those concerns in our own heart by looking to your character. And that as we ground our thinking in your character, that it would give us the confidence that comes with knowing that if you are for us, then none can be against us. May that be our prayer and our perspective even this week. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All right, have a blessed Sunday.